I want to talk about Jägermeister. Dad, what do you know about Jägermeister? I mean, well, really, all I know, it's got a really awesome stag logo. What, what else do I need to know about Jägermeister? Well, uh, you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time. Damn, that's cold. There's a right and wrong way to drink it? Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. You're listening to DraftKings Network. It's a beautiful What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. That is me. With me, as always, super producer Brandon Newman, Isaiah in the desert, my father, Mike Golick Sr. And, Dad, you're back in civilization right now for everyone watching. And, as always, you can check us out, DraftKingsNetwork.com. Check us out on YouTube after as well. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and leave us that five-star rating. Dad, you're moved back from the weight room into a real human room. Do you feel like a big boy again? Yeah, I feel good. We got this uh, this room finished. This was an unfinished part of the basement. We have two. The other room is a lot bigger. So figured we'd finish this one off. I got stuff coming for behind me. Um, so I have a little bit of, you know, backdrop uh, to this thing. And also we figured out it's probably the size of a bigger, a little bigger than like a walk-in closet. So we found out this is where it will be for the grandkids where we make them go for timeout. Go down to the basement, oh. get in that room where there's no windows or anything, and go sit in there for a while. Yeah, that's it. So that's it's, exactly it, what's going on. It's a famed place from my childhood. Um, my grandpa, so not your father, but my mom's dad, um, used to call it Little Boy's Prison. He would always threaten us right. at Little Boy's Prison anytime we would start acting up. And now we're going to have to expand that because, you know, uh, Sydney, my sister, is having a girl. So Little Girl's Prison will be involved in there too. All right, so we've got child prison going on down there in the basement. That's good. Set the tone. Yeah, um, that, that's how we roll. That, you know, we have a bunch. The only problem is there's a bunch of electronics down here, and I fear what they would do to that. Yeah, no, that doesn't seem, that seems like the opposite of baby proofing, quite <laughs> frankly. Does. So yeah. borderline irresponsible <laughs> might get you sent to actual adult prison if you keep that <laughs> up. You mentioned hanging stuff in the background. What are you going to do as far as your old accolades or any old awards you have? Like, where are you at on putting up memorabilia from when you were playing or things that celebrate you and I shot? So basically what happened when when I finished at ESPN in, in the beginning of 21, and we were packing up the house to move out of there. Um, let I, I guess I'll just say it this way. I don't have any memorabilia from growing up because your mother threw it all away. Much like your your Pokemon cards, Pokemon or, cards. The or the Beanie Babies or whatever. You're, you know, I, I've got this high school plaque, player of the year here, MVP here, all this. And she's like, do you want any of this? And I mean, at that point, she is already determined she's going to throw it out. So my answer is irrelevant, right? If there's a big dumpster in the driveway. She has them in her hand outside in the driveway. And basically, she only asked me because she actually saw me, right? Do you want any of this? What am I going to say? Yeah, save it all. And then I'm going to get that disgusted look by her and know, you know, I'm in hot water. So I'm like, no. She's like, if you do, we can just take pictures of it. You can look at the pictures another time. And so it, it all got tossed. So you know what, Mike? I got nothing. I got a bunch of your stuff, Jake's stuff, Sydney's stuff, you guys as kids, you guys as adults, that basically will will I'll put up here and there will be no nothing up here that will say, oh yeah, 
Uh, Mike Sr. played football and had accolades as well because they're all gone. And quite honestly, right now, I am afraid I've said this. And after the show is over, when I walk upstairs, your mother's going to be at the top of the stairs waiting for me. Yeah, I don't know a lot in this life, but I know that the only person I can guarantee is listening every day live when this all happens is my mom. So, yeah, you're a dead man. Congratulations on that, yeah. mom. I love you. I hope everything's going well here, and I don't agree with anything this weird old man said. So, uh, there you go. Good luck with that, Dad. Speaking of fighting words, uh, we got a great yes. show today. Uh, we're looking forward to getting to plenty of stuff, uh, conversations about the Jets' offensive line, the 49ers' front office, and a conversation with Tennessee Vols wide receiver Brew McCoy, who was Awesome to sit down with. He is expected to be the guy. He was their second receding, leading receiver last year. And now with the departure of Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Wilson and some of the other big names in that room, he's expected to be the go-to guy for Joe Milton. And we will let you know exactly why you should also be rooting for Brew McCoy to have as successful a season, especially in yeah. the end zone, yes. as humanly possible. But Dad, uh, speaking of fighting words, it's fighting season right now in training camp. I feel like there is that point for everyone where you're just so sick of hitting. Forget other people because you have the joint practices now. You've had right. some preseason games now. But you've been hitting your own guys in practice for a long time at this point if you're in an NFL training camp. And we saw that spill over all over the place yesterday. Nowhere more so than in Tyler or than in a Cowboys training camp. Zach yep. Martin comes back and apparently everyone felt like kickstarting the party in there. There was a knockdown drag out brawl. Sam Williams, one of their D linemen, was getting into it at the end of a one-on-one -on -one with Brock Hoffman, who's a younger player trying to make that roster. And Tyler Biadish comes over and says, Lord, I did not start this fight but Jesus, I will finish it. And then the uh, rest of the standing around and people watching this happen ensues, Dad. How'd you grade that fight? I thought that was great finish. Great job by Tyler Beatish, the center, finding work and helping his buddy. He's really living up to what a center's supposed to do on that play. That's a plus-plus for me. So early on um, in camp, it's usually the young guys who are fighting for a roster spot that will they get in fights early on just because they know they have to, to get involved like that. Now later on, not, not so much here, but we saw a fight with the Raiders uh, and the Rams with Max Crosby and Austin Eckler. So I mean, two guys who are very prominent for their teams. That's getting to the end of camp. You're ready to get out of camp. It's still hot. You're sick of you're sick of camp, and you get in you get into some fights. Which, as I've mentioned, especially in my time in Philadelphia with Buddy Ryan as a head coach, you were encouraged to fight. We fought all the time, all the time. And 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 as as you realize over the years, it is a waste of time and a waste of energy, complete waste of time and energy. But at the time you do it, you feel like you need to do it, and you're just ticked off because you're hot. And you're tired. This particular fight that we showed um, the, uh, the 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 clip of first, the left guard got his ass beat. Okay, he, he got smoked by an arm over by by Williams. He got he got beat. He he got beat. And what off? I'm going to let everybody in on this with who don't go to practice. What offensive linemen do at the end of every play, no matter if they got beat like they did there or not. They will keep their hand on a defensive player or push a defensive player. They feel like they need to be the last one to touch the D lineman. And that's what this young kid did. He got beat and he kept his hand on Williams after Williams, you know, had the sack, buried the quarterback. Williams kind of knocked his hand off. And of course, the kid put his hand back on him for no particular reason at all outside of that's what old linemen do. And then Williams went to crack him and Biotis, listen. More power to him. You come and you defend the color jersey you're wearing. Even when you're on the same team, you, some are in dark jerseys, some are in light jerseys. You protect the color jersey you're wearing. And he came in and smoked Williams. He did exactly what he should. But I was always amazed at you offensive linemen. You got to have your hand on him. You got to be the last one to touch the guy. It's aggravating. And I can see why D linemen get mad. I mean, he had to touch him because the D lineman had to swat his hands after the play there. He could have just run back to his side, but he had to get a shot in here. It was why response. he got beat. You know, when he had his chance, he had his chance when they said hut and he had it was in a one on one situation and he got smoked. He got smoked by Williams. So all of a sudden, five seconds after the play, he's got to keep his hand on the guy. So what what is that proving? Wait. All the coaches see is he got beat. 
No, but you're saying he put his hands on after that Sam Williams had knocked him off. If Sam Williams, after he had already won the rep, doesn't feel like he's got to get one more shot in, he probably doesn't have to put his hands back on here. The smarter side of the ball generally doesn't have to operate in that. But if you want to get something extra and even after the play, what are you going to do? Hand chop the guy after you've already sacked the quarterback? That seems meaningless and like a wasted rep. Well, it does, but you got your butt beat. Now you're keeping your hand on me after I sack the quarterback. Get off. Take your whooping. Go back to the huddle like a man. And, boy, he didn't do that. So, Bjadich did, though. That hit that dude came in smoking. So, listen, fights, Amen. as I said, Eckler and Crosby got in a fight, and they both were out of practice after this because there's a zero-tolerance fight policy. And, and I found out a huge difference. When I was in Philly, we fought all the time, and then I went to Miami my last year, and three other, you know, Eagles players went with me and fights would start there. And it was different. Don Shula, who was a coach, would basically say he's going to fine us for fighting. Where in Philly, a fight started and Buddy Ryan just was twirling his whistle, laughing, you know, watching it all. So, uh, but, but as I said, it, it is a waste of time to fight. But it's easy to sit here and say that now when you and I have both been in camps where you're tired you're hot. You don't feel like that last push. You know, it just sends you over the top and you just start swinging and fighting. And that it just happens. And, but it, it truly is a waste of for time. A guy, especially for a guy like Brock, though, like I sort of joke about that. The number one thing I got told going into NFL training camps as an undrafted guy by other undrafted offensive linemen, and Brock Hoffman was an undrafted player out of Virginia Tech last year and ended up spending some time with the Browns, is you got popped by any means necessary. And I was told, start fights. Like, it is an easy yeah. way to get noticed. It is an easy way to let them know, hey, you're going to play through the echo of the whistle. whistle. You're going to be physical. All that stuff. Is it relatively useless after you get beat in a play like that? Yeah, absolutely. But it's far more about a mentality. And I'll say yeah. in that rep, the one thing, the one difference between those two guys, Sam Williams has job security. Brock Hoffman does not, as far as I know, based on his trajectory in the NFL. And so you are doing whatever you've got to by any you're means right. necessary, brother. You're right. Listen, that's what my my dad taught me and I tried to send to you guys was is was exactly that. I mean, don't back down, get in a fight. I remember my first nine on seven in Philadelphia. Um, nine on seven, for those that don't know, is just a running drill. It's a running drill, the O line, the D line, running backs and linebackers. And back then it was full it was full go. But this particular day in Philadelphia, this was my first practice in pads in Philly when I signed with them, it was thud. Again, thud means you just kind of form up tackle. You just pop a guy, but you don't take him to the ground. Well, I had my dad's, you know, words singing in my head. So this was the first rep I took in full pads against the offense, the number one offense in Philadelphia, nine on seven. And I, I shedded the, the guard. And Keith Byers, I remember, was a running back. And he wasn't expecting it because it was thud. And I drove him into the ground. <laughs> Absolutely drunk. And of course, every old lineman jumped on me. And of course, all my D linemen had my back. And that was the start of a whole lot of melees. And and I felt pretty satisfied. And I heard after that, Buddy Ryan was like, okay, I kind of like this kid. He'll fight. <laughs> See, listen, your, your goal in camp is to figure out what is my boss's love language and how do I go out there and speak it? And for Buddy Ryan, that love language was hitting people when you're not supposed to. <laughs> I want to talk about Jägermeister. Dad, what do you know about Jägermeister? I mean, well, really, all I know, it's got a really awesome stag logo. What, what else do I need to know about Jägermeister? Well, uh, you should know that you've been drinking it all wrong this entire time. Damn, that's cold. There's a right and wrong way to drink it? Yes, there is, Dad. You should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit, to be exact. Huh? Well, you know what? That explains a lot. I've just been pulling it straight off the shelf. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I got to you in time. No, that is entirely wrong. The only way to serve Jägermeister is ice cold. So wherever you're at, if you're hanging out with friends or you're at the bar or you're helping your dear sweet father try and get right, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister U.S., White Plains, New York.
Dad, speaking of offensive line conversations, it wasn't quite a fist fight, but Rob Sala seemed like he wanted to hurt his starting offensive oh. line watching Hard Knocks the other night. He lit them up something serious oh. as they were in joint practice, talking about how the defense had basically lived up to their identity, but they were only going to go so far as their offensive line took them, how they wanted to reshape the identity. You can have a Hall of Fame quarterback. You can have two $10 million plus receivers. You can have a reigning offensive rookie of the year. You can have all kinds of skill in the running back room. None of it matters until the big boys up front change who the we are. Dad, while that made for a great moment, and obviously that's what happens in camp, especially after a bad performance, when Aaron Rodgers got asked about this, he said his level of concern about the offensive line was pretty low at this point. And I can understand that given the performance they're dealing with now. They're in joint practice with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and it apparently wasn't cute out there. But they don't have Lakin Tomlinson at guard out with a leg injury right now. Elijah Vera Tucker's out with an ankle injury, too, who'd be their right guard. And their left tackle, Dwayne Brown, who's still coming off that offseason shoulder surgery. So, Dad, how worried should Jets fans be about it at this juncture with the O-line still being in flux? The only thing I worry about is when the season starts and who's available. Because getting beat now without your two guards, your tackle, Makai Becton is still trying to get back into shape as well, coming off uh, his two years of injury. So you got a lot of guys that weren't even on the field. So my fear is that now and watching a practice where they give up four, five, six sacks or whatever, because these are our backups. Um, so the concern is like last year, what do they have? 10 or 11 line con, um, um, combinations. That's 11. what hurts you at 11. It has to be the group that's together the most. Those five offensive linemen have to work in unison better than any other group out there. So that would be the only worry to me is if these injuries and them not practicing now goes into the season. Then I'm worried because the one thing I think we definitely can agree on, Mike, is depth is a key part of any team. And O-line depth in the NFL is probably the toughest thing to have in this league. Yeah, you look around during the preseason, and that has jumped off the tape on every preseason game so far, as we've seen a lot of young guys get in spin, is these backup quarterbacks do not have a lot of time to get rid of the football. And that's, you know, a more far-reaching issue going all the way down to high school, where the majority of your biggest, strongest, best athletes are going over to play D-line. And then the offensive line, which is the one of the most technical positions on the field, you also have less and less practice time with those guys that you're trying to teach this position in college once you get to the NFL after that 2011 CBA. So all of those things have absolutely added up into less quality as you go further down the roster. And to your point, Dad, last year, Football Outsiders has a stat called adjusted games lost due to injury. And the Jets had the fourth most games lost to injury last year on offense. And the majority of that came along the offensive line. And we saw what that result was like and so I'm sure this is the fear for Jets fans that you have as a holdover from last year of we saw what this is like and if we've already got especially with our best players Dwayne Brown and Elijah Vera Tucker are the two best linemen on this team if that's the case then we've got really big issues even with Aaron Rodgers being able to mitigate some of that so that's certainly going to be a tall task for the Jets on offense to try and figure out there. But that's really one that's up to time in the doctors right now as far as when those guys right. get back out on the field and how much time they get together. We know the first quarter of the season ends up being a bit like a pseudo preseason, especially along the offensive line. So we'll give them that grace. Dad, how much grace should we be affording to the 49ers front office? We saw yesterday some very uh, pointed words from one of our colleagues here at DraftKings Network and Michael Lombardi talking about um, Trey Lance and his ability and his future as the 49ers quarterback. But it prompted an interesting discussion. I got text from Bamani Jones the other day talking about, and I saw him tweet about the 49ers front office and what is their <laughs> culpability, Dad, in trading multiple first-round picks to go up to third to getting Trey Lance and now his career turning out the way it has. So listen, they have done, and John Lynch has done a great job of, they have one of the most talented rosters in the NFL. You go through draft picks and free agency every offseason. They have built, they are a Super Bowl ready team right now. But that doesn't mean all your draft picks work out, right? And when you trade up to the number three spot and take a quarterback that is without question, and we all know it meant to be your quarterback of the future, they took a quarterback with 17 
college football starts. You look at a list of quarterbacks going back. Uh, Anthony Richardson, the jury's out, obviously, hasn't played yet. 13 starts. Trey Lance, 17. Mac Jones, 17. Kyler Murray, 18. Mitch Trubisky, 13. Ryan Tannehill, 19. All the way back to Mark Sanchez, 16. These are first-round quarterbacks with that, those few of starts. Only one. It was Kyler Murray had one Pro Bowl caliber season. That's it. None of the other quarterbacks have or did because obviously Sanchez is not playing anymore. So the risk you were taking in taking a Trey Lance was huge. So while he has done a great job on a lot of his draft picks and free agency, there's got to be a huge finger pointing at him because you're talking about a quarterback, you're talking about number three pick, and you gave up assets to go up to number three to get it. So that is on the shoulders of John Lynch, who they for some they obviously thought he was good enough and would overcome what the odds are against college players with not a lot of starts. So while everybody's dumping on Trey, and I get it, man, maybe, maybe as we're finding out, maybe Trey wasn't ready for this. And again, his his starts of 17, this was not in Division One football. So it is taking him a long while to adapt. If he ever will, we'll see. But that, to me, while John Lynch gets a whole lot of thumbs up for some of the moves he's made, this one is proving to be a monster two thumbs down because, again, it's a quarterback and a guy that's supposed to be, was supposed to be the face of your organization that is not going to be. One, I think that's the dissonance here too, right? Is usually when you're a front office and you trade for a quarterback or you draft one high in the draft, the clock starts for your job too. Usually yep. the coach and the GM's fate are tied to what the quarterback that they pick does. And in this case, because the rest of their team and because their head coach and play caller have been so transcendent, they've been able to achieve results despite that. And so they've gotten a pass. I think it's going to end up being like rollover blame, where if things did go wrong and the quarterback was the reason, if Brock Purdy, who was sensational last year in a small sample size, does regress because that's how math works and it goes pretty poorly, do you got to keep Trey Lance around in order to have that fail safe just in case? That's why I don't think he ends up getting moved the more I think about it, Dad, because if you have him around in case things go wrong during the season, now you've got your out of at least we didn't trade him away and he didn't do this for someone else. I think their fail safe is going to be Sam Darnold, not Trey Lance. I think Trey Lance is going to be the third quarterback and whether he gets moved or not, we'll see. But I think their fail safe because this is a Super Bowl roster is Sam Darnold. Oh, no, I think he's their backup, but I think their fail-safe for this part of the reputation could still be Lance. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And now that the Boston Celtics have slayed the boogeyman in the Miami Heat, Boston fans will feel a little bit more confident about the situation. You can decide right now, and if you're new to DraftKings, you can also check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, we're getting close and uh, very excited to kick off college football season and bring on a guy whose name we expect to hear a lot over the course of the upcoming fall. Brew McCoy, great wideout for the Tennessee Volunteers, kind enough to hang out with us today here. Brew, how you doing, man? How's training camp treating you? Man, I'm doing great. Training camp's been awesome. You know, it's, it's coming down to the end here. We're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so it's been cool. But, but, but at least tell me that you don't like training camp, okay? Only quarterbacks like training camp to get a hit, correct? <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, yeah, no, training, training camp's a grind. Like, it's, it's a different grind, but, you know, kind of having holding out hope is the last one for me. So that's kind of motivated me through it. 
I was going to say, is is that the goal? I mean, you're heading into camp now, and you're one of the old heads on the roster. I know yeah, with the COVID no. years, that's kind of all got messed up, but I remember being a 23-year-old on a college campus going into my final year, and you start to kind of feel your age. Have you had any of those moments being around a young locker room where you start to feel like the old guy around? Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, like today, and I went down to go grab lunch, and some of the new freshmen, it's like their first week here, and I looked, and I was like, dang, like – I'm getting old, man. I don't know what it is. I, I hope you were like, boy, I hope I wasn't looking like that or acting like that when I was a freshman. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. It, uh, so, listen, Brew, for you, it, you've had a fascinating road through college football. Obviously, you know, your recruitment, one of the biggest recruits in the country, coming out of Southern California at modern day, you know, the back and forth with USC and Texas. You have the couple of years at SC, and, and now you land all the way across the country in Knoxville. For you, through one season now already under your belt in Knoxville, what's been like the biggest culture shock you've had coming from Southern California all the way over here to Tennessee? Oh, man. Uh, pretty much, I mean, kind of a little bit night and day. Like, I was there during – I was at USC during predominantly during COVID, so I got a, a little bit of a different experience. But, you know, having sellout games when you're playing a, a ball state to open out the season, you know, 102,000 fans at everything. You got 40,000, 50,000 when you're – walking out just to go to the game. I mean, that was a culture shock for me. And then, uh, you know, like I order DoorDash or Uber Eats sometimes and I get notes written on the Uber Eats, like go Vols and crazy things. And everybody knows, you know, kind of who I am and, and in the town. And I mean, it's been night and day compared to growing up in, in SoCal, you know. Yeah, and you better like the color orange, that's for sure. Cause no you, doubt. You, you see enough <laughs> of it. How it, it Kind of take people on the field and explain for, for those, the high percentage that will never be a wide receiver or a quarterback pretty much at any level, mm -hmm. of the difference. You had Hendon Hooker last year, was having a monster year before his injury. Now you have Milton this year. For a receiver, the, how different is it to have two different quarterbacks, different throwing styles? How does it affect you and the relationship with a quarterback? I mean, I think you just have to have an understanding of, of who they are as a player, how they think. Uh, you know, Hendon and Joe spent so much time together, they kind of process things in a similar way. Um, obviously, Joe's got this, like, extraordinary arm strength, so you take that into account. So in this offseason, it was like, let's go catch as many balls with the jugs turned up another notch because uh, you got to be ready for that. But, you know, it's not that big of a change in my eyes. We, we're running the same offense, but, you know, different guy at the helm. And Joe's just – he's learned a lot through Hendon, but he's got his own flavor to it. So you kind of pick up things as you play with them on the field, but hasn't been much of a difference. Has has Joe ever let one go in practice to where, I mean, you, you hear the strength of his arm of just how far he can throw a ball? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you've seen quite a – I mean, some of them, it's like off his back foot. It looks like Aaron Rodgers, and it goes, you know, 60 to 80 yards, and you're like, what? Like, it doesn't even seem like like real. But, I mean, he's just – he's a special guy with a, with a special arm, no doubt. And he's also got a super high football IQ. So, I mean, you put those things together, it kind of – the sky's the limit for our offense. And you mentioned your offense, Josh Heupel comes over, and everyone knows his M.O., everyone sees the speed, how many plays you guys get off, but what for you has been the biggest difference from year one when you got here digesting that offense to now going in with another with all those reps under your belt in the year two now? Uh, you, you, get a, you start to kind of see things better than before. Before I was kind of focused on, like, what's my assignment? You know, what, where do I need to be? Now it's like I know the assignment, like how can I execute it at the highest level, and especially in our offense. So for me, it's kind of like seeing safety structures, understanding how defenses rotate, things of that nature, and then understanding how Joe's thinking and where he expects me to show up at. Um, so the biggest jump for me was like now I don't go out and I'm like, let me make sure I know what route I have and the tempo we have. You know, Let me make sure I'm seeing these signals the right way. Now you, you take the next step, and it's like let's execute at a high, like a high level, you know, and, and – be where you're supposed to be, but also show up and make decisions that you weren't making last year. You mentioned that tempo. That is one thing I wanted to get at because everyone sees it. It gets talked about in the broadcast. What's it like as you're getting onboarded into this Josh Heupel hurry-up system for you physically trying to deal with the demands of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was like super unorthodox. It was nothing like I had ever seen in football. Um, 
you know, usually you're like, well, wait, don't you want me to know what I have to do? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. But you also, you need to do it as fast as humanly possible. So you learn that the best thing to do is just rep it and rep it and rep it and rep it. So you can execute it quickly and it becomes second nature after you've seen so many signals or so many, like so many play calls, you understand the playbook. It's just a matter of like knowing, yeah, we're going to go fast, but if you know what you're doing, it's only going to help you once you get on the field. So take us back to last season. A heck of a season started out winning their first eight before that first loss to Georgia. But specifically that win over Alabama, 52-49, to 49, one of which as a former defensive player I would not have wanted to go into the meeting room the next day, even if I was on the winning team because it had to be awful. But you have the catch that sets up the winning field goal, and then the place goes nuts. You know, the field is rushed and everything. Take right. us again through that moment that not a lot of us will ever be able to go through. Yeah, well, I mean, we put a huge emphasis not only throughout practice, but in, in our film room, like fourth quarter and, and showing up. And I didn't have like a, a superstar game that game. You know, I didn't have crazy stats or anything like that. But I knew when it came down that fourth quarter, like that's when we showed up and we put a huge emphasis every day. Like we all hold our fours up and it go and go out. So I think we had a high level of confidence going on the field. Like I didn't have a doubt we we're going to go execute. Ramel caught the pass before. I was like, all right, like I got to show up at some point, like, ball comes across the field, you know, it's kind of like you're just doing your job. You've repped it so many times. You've done it so many times. Like, and, you know, obviously like a lot of other things had to happen in that game for, to get that opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, I felt like honestly on the field, it didn't, the moment didn't feel like a big moment to me. It was just like an opportunity. It was another play. And then in hindsight, you look back and you're like, yeah, like that, that was pretty big. What about the moment after that game gets done? Goalposts are coming down. Cigars are getting lit everywhere. What do you remember anything from the post game? I remember. Uh, I remember looking like to my left, and I'm like, "Yeah, that guy's wearing my helmet." And this dude is. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, there's a picture of him in the stands, like holding his arms up, and then you can see the 15 on the back of his helmet, and. Uh, <laughs> Actually, the first one of the first people I ran into was my grandfather, and I was like, "I can't believe you jumped off that wall." And uh, we hugged it out, and you know, it, I mean, it was just like it was like a dream from that point, you know. What what a great moment! And yeah, for your grandfather, that's the adrenaline going. We know what adrenaline yeah, can do; it can absolutely. get you going. So, so for for you, we listen. We know what team goals are. You guys would love to right. win the SEC, get to the, get to the playoffs as a team. I completely understand that. But for you as an individual who was someone to look to go to the next level as well and show out well for it, do you have individual goals? And if so, what, what are those? Yeah, I mean, I think the two kind of coincide. Um, not to, like, not say, hey, yeah. I want to I catch for as many yards as I possibly can. I want to – every ball thrown my way, like, I'm, I live in the mindset, you catch everything thrown your way. Um, I think for me, like refining my skill set as a receiver was a big emphasis in the offseason. Being able to play with like a higher football IQ, recognizing defenses, because that was something that I never really I understood like, yeah, this is a cover two look or this is a cover four or whatever. But now like the ins and outs of defense, being a defensive player in high school, I kind of understand how the D line works. So that was a big emphasis. And then route running, uh, finishing like run after catch for me is a big emphasis, being able to extend plays. Um, you know, but as far as like numbers and stats, I feel like that all comes with execution and how you work and the effort you put in. So nothing, uh, no like numerical values or anything. I, I definitely just want to do what I can to help the team win. You mentioned a couple of times having a feeling you get a better grasp of what you're seeing from defenses, what's expected of you, what the quarterback wants. What do you attribute that to? Is that reps? Is that the way Josh Heupel has helped teach this to you guys? You had great receivers in the room last year and Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Wilson. Where do you really attribute that coming from in that development? Um, primarily, I'd say our, our receiver coaches um, in the offseason and, and throughout this summer coach pope and coach cook like both of them it took a lot of time to be like hey like you're an older guy like these things are important to know just in football period um so we spent a lot of time in the film room and it, and you take the step from just looking at all right like look at this guy run a route and be like you know what type of coverage is this why is this open you know and kind of trying to just develop and take the next step and then it helps you especially in our offense where you're reading defenses on the run 
So I think that's a unique thing just in our, in our offense or in, in football, really, for the receiver. So that helped me a lot once it got back on the field. And, and then, obviously, confidence on the field. Are there any times at, at 6'3 and over 220 pounds, when you go up and line out wide and there's a DB that's like 5'10", do you just look at the quarterback and look at the kid and said, game over, buddy. You know, <laughs> tell Milton, just throw it my way. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm thinking it most of the time, but that's like the mindset once you step between the lines is kind of – it's a killer mentality for me. Like, I'm real calm, cool, collected off the field. But once I step on the field, like, that's when my – football character comes out and uh no, I don't I don't think there's anybody that should uh feel confident standing in front of me because I feel confident you know no uh understandably yeah. so given your track record we mentioned the couple of guys you played with last year that are off in the NFL now and Cedric and Jalen what did you take from those guys as you looked at them as you saw their game playing with them and playing next to them for a season man um Honestly, I think that the first thing I learned from them was like how to play with confidence. I was always like a kind of an anxious guy. Like I went out and I would have to rep things a bunch because I'd be kind of apprehensive about, you know, getting out there and playing. And those guys, it was like, dude, once you know this stuff, go out there and play ball. And they played with like a certain level of confidence and a demeanor that I think helped them have a lot of success. And then them going to the next level and being able to talk to them now they're like look like everything's in front of you like you've seen what it takes just continue to do the little things that we we, we were doing a year ago and it'll all pay off obviously they've laid out a hell of a roadmap in front of you as has your head coach you know Josh Heupel is a guy that a lot of people have known throughout his different journeys at college football what stood out to him most uh what stood out most about him to you now going into year two being coached by that guy Oh man, he he's ex extremely extremely smart, like a different level, um, and it and it shows up in the way that he thinks and processes football. Um, that and then just his level of character as as a man, like I look up to him as a man. The way he carries himself, conducts himself, and the way he treats his players is second to none. Um, you know, not only is he a great coach that's going to push you, but He's going to be the coach that pulls you to the side, loves you up when you mess up, you know. And he's just – he's a special dude on and off the field. And I got a, a super high level of respect for him. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what went on in college ball when I was in it was different and when Mike was in it, it was different. And now you're in it and the transfer portal is such a big thing now and you come over from USC. Again, tell, tell people what – is it is it like recruiting all over again, or is it more you have in mind where you want to go and try and work that out, or is it like when you were eighteen and you know all the coaches are coming into your living room trying to sell their program? Yeah, honestly, I, I, if any of those, I feel like it's more similar to like coming out of high school again, and and I feel like that depends on the guy you are too, because also if you've got film on tape in college, like you've kind of put a little bit of the product on tape already versus high school, you got, you're like, oh, we can develop this guy and get him to where he needs to be. If he's already put college downs on tape, you check that tape out. So you'll get like a, maybe they recruit for a better fit because they know the product they're getting, but very similar to college recruiting. And I think some guys have an idea where they want to go or why they might have gotten the portal, whether it be to get away from somewhere or to head somewhere else. That's, I guess it's objective, but um, yeah, it, I mean, once you're in the portal, it is like high school again. It's such a fascinating different world right now. There's there's no doubt about it. But like you said, you had a resume already when you came over to Tennessee. And now, certainly for this season, you're walking in, you're not going to sneak up on everybody. I think a lot of people have you circled as someone who is going to be a big-time playmaker for the Vols this year. As you've gone through camp now and you've seen the rest of your team, who are a couple of guys that maybe to you have stuck out that are due for that kind of jump that you think people are really going to enjoy what they see out of them coming up this fall for Tennessee? Um, I definitely like Ramel Keaton, Dante Thornton, Squirrel White, um, Caleb Webb, Chaz Nimrod. Like out of the receiver room, we got a lot of guys that can make a lot of plays. Uh, very deep in our receiver room. Um, How how has it been with Squirrel? I saw he was on Bruce Feldman's Freaks list. Like, it, <laughs> first off, how is it knowing a guy named Squirrel? I feel yeah. like you don't get a lot of squirrels <laughs> in Southern California. No, like, I mean, he's he's like, I'm me and him are real close, and he's hilarious for one. Like, cracks jokes, and I think people have heard, but he's came out of his shell a ton, and like, 
getting to know him and everything has been awesome. But he is a freak. I've, I've never seen someone be able to put their foot in the ground and change directions and not lose an ounce of speed the way he can. And um, he's improved a lot this offseason. I think he, he's going to have a great season. And then Dante is like another freak. He's 6'5", probably runs a 4'3". And, oh. you know, it's – yeah. So we, we've got a lot to work with, no doubt. Well, I, I, Brew, I want to leave you with this. We talked a lot about the on-field stuff. You mentioned your admiration for the man that your head coach is, but uh, I saw something you were involved in that seemed pretty special too. Talk to me about Huddles for Hearts and the work that you've done around bringing awareness and attention to sudden cardiac arrest in athletes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I, I had a great opportunity. Um, her her name is Julie Walker. Julie Walker had had lost her, her daughter, Peyton Walker, to sudden cardiac arrest and subsequently started uh, the Peyton Walker Foundation, which has raised awareness for sudden cardiac arrest. And I'm, I was able to partner with them and create the Huddle for Hearts organization. So we were able to help fundraise, raise some money so that we could get AED machines. And I guess for those who don't know, an AED machine is essentially the first instrument they use if you do have an instance of sudden cardiac arrest. So raised some money, was able to get some AEDs given to myself. And then within the local Knoxville community, I was able to go out and give some and then also teach about CPR training and how to use the AED. And actually, more recently, I just did a, an NIL deal where I guess for every touchdown I catch, I get an AED donated so I can continue to go out in the community and, and donate those as well. Oh, wow. wow. That is awesome. That's Incredibly special. I mean, wow. especially, obviously, this has been a problem for athletes for a while, but, you know, as the stories are more well publicized at this point here, raising that awareness and definitely something for everyone to keep an eye on now. Brew, if we weren't rooting for you before, I think everyone can now root for as many Brew McCoy touchdowns as humanly possible this upcoming season in Knoxville. Absolutely. So, uh, congratulations on all the success, man. Best of luck this season. We're looking forward to watching you, man. Thanks for joining us today. Likewise. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> Dan, I think we both walked away pretty impressed, a 23-year-old. And you see the maturity of someone who's been around <laughs> yeah. college football as long as he has shined through there. I mean, listen, when you when you interview anybody, you know, you're not sure what you're going to get. And wow, we, we were both like we were got done with him. Like, what a what an incredible young man on the field and trying to obviously get to his next dream, the NFL, but who he's helping off the field. Certainly quickly on Tennessee, they had the top scoring offense, top total offense last year in the country. Probably won't be that this year, but maybe close to it. But they scored quick, so the defense was on the field a lot. They were horrible against the pass and total defense. They lost their top rusher. So we'll see if the two sides can even out a little bit. But man, you want to talk about now rooting for a kid to get, a 23, a young man, to get into the end zone and what that's going to mean for organizations and people that he's going to help. He's going to do a lot of that good there, but, Dad, I'd be remiss if I didn't miss this also. Brew McCoy is also the cookie monster for Tennessee this season. So in Tennessee, Moonshine Mountain Cookies has signed this NIL deal in recent years there, going back to Alante Taylor, who was a DB there, who, when he was a defensive back, Alante Taylor, anytime he had an interception in the game, everyone in the stadium got two free cookies from Moonshine Mountain oh. Cookies. Now this year, if Brew McCoy scores two or more touchdowns in any game, so they're expecting a lot from him, fans can get two free cookies at Moonshine Mountain the following Monday. So doing good and feeding the people with delicious sugary wow. treats at the same time. Ladies, gentlemen, get you a player that can do both. All right, time to get to this, that, and the third. Three quick stories. Send you off on your way. As always, download, subscribe, rate, review, five-star rating, DraftKings YouTube, all that good stuff. And also, knockaround.com. I'm going to keep telling you guys until you listen because I know what's good for you because I care about you. I love you even. I'll say it. I'm not afraid to say it. We're grown folks in 2023. We can tell our friends we love them, and I love you. I love you enough to want to give you the gift of great sunglasses that aren't going to hurt your wallet. That is Knockaround, your go-to high-quality polarized sunglasses that aren't going to break the bank here. You can get ready for the home stretch of Major League Baseball season. Their net and, uh, first nine teams of the MLB collection are out. You got the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Astros, the Mariners, all good stuff. I rock the Mariners ones all the time. 
They're sleek. A lot of them have that no-move patch on the nose. They're going to keep those locked in. You got the U.S. men's and women's national team soccer sunglasses, which we will get to some news on that front. So don't be squinting at the sun, getting sand out of your overpriced shades, worrying about them, fussing about them. Go to knockaround.com, use code GOLIC at checkout, and get free shipping on your order and get some of the best sunglasses in the business starting at just 28 bucks. Dad, let's get to this, that, and the third. And start with this. We mentioned the U.S. women's national team. Uh, the change we all expected happened. Uh, Vlatko Andonovsky, the co- uh, coach for the U.S. women's national team, is stepping down from that role after the round of 16 loss to Sweden in the World Cup. Obviously, Dad, going back to the last Olympics, it had been a bit of a disappointing stretch relative to the ungodly standard of U.S. women's soccer. But we all saw this move coming, and so now they get to begin the quest and the search for who was going to take over the helm as they get prepared for Paris. Yeah, this not unexpected at all. Looks like Twila Kilgore, one of the assistants, will probably take over the team with the upcoming friendlies with South Africa in September. And then it's the search. Where do you go? I know a big name out there, Serena Wigman, who who used to you know head up the Netherlands. Now she coaches the England. Uh, so she's been highly successful and sought after, and she has a contract there until like 2025. But so I don't, I don't know what the workings are there, but she is certainly a name that a lot of people talk about. And also uh, Laura Harvey, uh, who is a coach in the uh, NWSL. She coached the U.S. Uh, 20 and under, I believe it was a 20 and under, U.S. under 20 national team as well. So you know, those are a couple of names out there right now. We'll see how the inner workings of this work. But right now, it'll be an assistant, I think, coaching these friendlies. And then got to get one soon, you know, manager soon, and get ready for these Olympics to get to get this team back up. It's kind of like when the dream team in basketball all of a sudden – or it wasn't a dream team, but basketball lost. And we were like, okay, timeout. We need a big reset here. And the uh, the, the, the women are resetting – you know, with someone running the show now, they have their their young players who are gaining experience. They just now need someone to lead them. Yeah, that really is the best comp because we expect winning every year and being the coach right. with this on their resume. Andonovsky becomes the first U.S. women's national team coach to enter multiple major tournaments and win none of them. So a yeah. tough way to exit here, but a parting of ways that we all knew was coming. And uh, at this point, probably for the better. Dad, let's get to that. Uh, something we don't see very often here. Now, we know a lot of the number rules have changed around the NFL. Different players allowed to wear single digits. Right now, I've heard broadcasters, former quarterbacks, a lot of people, Tom Brady, I think, loudly complaining about, oh, well, how am I going to be able to identify who's you're just you're yeah. going to figure it out? You're going to do it. Yeah, let, safe. The, let the cool yes. players wear cool numbers. Exactly. Yeah. Like, let's not make this harder than it needs to be. Teddy Bridgewater zagging when everyone else would zig. Teddy Bridgewater, who wore number five for a lot of his NFL career, will now be wearing number 50 during the Lions preseason as he is competing as their backup quarterback there. Official rules only allow quarterbacks to wear numbers 0 through 19, but in the preseason, all the other numbers in that range are claimed, and the number 7 is the retired number of Dutch Clark in the Lions organization. And so, Dad, this is uncomfortable on multiple fronts because a quarterback wearing 50 is an abomination. It's an affront to God and man, but also... You've got a bunch of dudes on this team wearing Teddy Bridgewater's future number who have to be looking around like, oh, he's just a buzzard circling my carcass as we get down to cut time in camp. It's exactly right. A couple other quarterbacks on there with the numbers that you're allowed to wear, and you're just waiting. One of those is going to be a carcass that he's going to pull the jersey off of. So you're right. I mean, but that's camp, man. You know there's 90 players and you know only 53 are on the team. So there's going to be a lot of carcasses. That's just how it works every year but you know that's something that's looming and going to happen but number 50 that's pretty wild kudos to him because i know you've talked about it a lot i've never really considered a good number a bad number i was just happy i got handed a number when i got to the nfl like at notre dame i took 55 because my brother bob was 55 and he was a linebacker and i was uh going to be a d lineman and a linebacker so i had taken his number nfl i was a 10th round draft pick the houston oilers handed me the jersey 68 when I was with them and I didn't care what it was, nor did I think that's a bad number. I just got issued a Jersey, but I think in your, the way you break down numbers, you don't think that's a very good number. 
So this is my thing is it's not like there's not gratitude for the number and the opportunity. I'm just saying objectively for a D lineman, 68 is one of the least swagged out numbers on earth. Great O-line number, especially if you can wind up at guard. Like, Dad, it just it's about the look of it, right? Like, there are certain numbers that just don't look as cool. I got 67 when I got to Steelers camp as a rookie, and I was pumped to have it. I was glad to be there but not the most aesthetically pleasing number. And they gave it to a D lineman in that camp too. So everyone was looking at us like uh, there can only be one Highlander. So how's this going to work for you guys? But yeah, there's just some that inherently suck. We can call it what it is. So what did you think then of my number in Philly was 90 and then Miami 96? How are those numbers? Objectively, right? Oh God, both of those for D line. Great numbers, awesome numbers that work really well there. D lineman numbers that end up in like the high 50s get a little bit weird. 55 and below can usually party. It's a lot of the numbers in the 40s that end up becoming really weird. So if you get like a DB wearing 39 or a high 40s number, even for safeties, it just doesn't tend to sing the same way for me. So that being said, (laughs) I kind of appreciate Teddy Bridgewater walking into uncharted quarterback territory and blazing his own trail the way that Teddy often has. The great ambassador for the position, merging worlds kind of with the offensive line on this. That's really why I like it. (laughs) Um, Dad, let's get to the third. Now, it shouldn't be surprising when I say this, but people were a little too horny on God's internet the other day. And, man, I wasn't prepared for it to be a baseball. So it's kind of been an ongoing thing. If any of you guys watch our friends over at the Dan Lebitard Show, one of my favorite limited fake impressions has become... Your co-host on Golik and Smetty, Jessica Smetana's limited fake Jimbo Fisher thirsting over Mrs. Met, who we'll just say is built like a Pixar character. Like, for some reason, they felt like giving Mrs. Met a wagon in a way that seems highly inappropriate in mascot world, but also has everyone out here completely disrespecting Mr. Met and the sanctity of that marriage, Dad. Have you ever seen anything like this in all your years of covering sports? I mean, this, this is clearly one of those... Mr. Met is out of his league, right? He married way above oh, his pay yeah. grade. And he's just trying to hang on because everybody's going after Mrs. Met. I don't know Mrs. Met. I don't know how much he's loving the attention or she's thinking about stepping out on Mr. Met. I'm sure she would have plenty of opportunity if she wants. I don't want to be that guy that breaks up a wonderful mascot marriage uh, at all. But I, I do think they put Mr. Met in a very, very difficult situation oh there's mr met oh my god there's mrs met what the hell is she doing with him and then we go from there and then we kind of lose the aspect of the whole mascot thing and then we're wondering about the relationship between mr and mrs met i mean what's she doing with all that cake is the real question here i mean you got even brandon covering up his face on the thing we put up here on the show for people watching on youtube there's no respect i got people in the quote tweets challenging mr met to fight and i gotta be honest dad going back and looking at that photo because mentioned everyone's relationship is their own we don't know what their establishment is we don't know what their agreement is right now but what i do know is looking back at the photos of that table i don't see either of them wearing a ring yeah I'm just saying, we don't know how they get down. We hope you want to put a ring on this podcast. If you do, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Boom. Money in the bank. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.